0: We're going to be in Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 22 this morning. That's where we're going to be digging in. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, I'll read the text for us. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, you can follow along on the screen behind me. So the text picks up in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, "...then she arose, Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food." And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for is it exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And, then, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is that this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. In 1774, a man by the name of William Cowper wrote a hymn called, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And one of the verses of that hymn, listen to the words that he pens. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. A couple of weeks ago, we said that that word providence is the knot that gets formed when you take the thread of God's sovereignty and the thread of God's goodness, and you tie them together. So that God is governing the world, human affairs, on a global scale and on a personal scale, and he's doing so for his glory and for our good. And so you've got God's sovereignty, his governance, his control, moving things forward toward his purposes, accomplishing his agenda, and you have his glory and our goodness, and you tie those, th- or his goodness, and you tie those things together, and you've got the knot of God's providence. He's providentially governing things for our good. But there are times in which God's providence, we said a few weeks ago as well, there are seasons of God's providence that are very stormy, aren't there? And there are seasons of God's providence that are very calm. There are seasons in which it's nothing but cloudy and drizzling and fog that descends over our lives. And there are seasons in which it's clear as a bell, right? So there are seasons in which God is is, is providentially working both through the storms and through the sun. He's both working through the clouds and through the clearing. He's working all the while behind the scenes, and this, one of the things the book of Ruth teaches us is that very thing, that even in the most dark and despairing and desperate of days, God is still working. The sun has not gone anywhere even when the storms begin to erupt on the horizon. The sun has not gone anywhere even whenever the clouds descend and the fog settles upon us. The sun is still there. It's just behind sometimes the thunderheads or the fog as they settle in our lives. God is still active. He has not abdicated his throne. He's not given up the right to rule. He's still working. He's still providentially governing things for his glory and for our good. But sometimes, sometimes we experience his providence as, 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 as frowning, don't we? In those stormy and cloudy seasons. But Calper says behind the frowning providence hides a smiling face because God is working for his glory and your good that's one of the things the book of Ruth teaches us and one of the ways that we see the smiling face hiding behind the frowning providence in the book of Ruth is very clearly in this last latter portion of chapter one we see it outlined we see glimpses of it in this friendship that is forged between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law between Ruth and Naomi See, in a, in, a, in a season and a day in which uh, loyalty and love was far removed from the people of Israel, Ruth demonstrates it clearly in her relationship with Naomi. One other church father by the name of Jerome, he said this, he said, A friend is long sought, hardly found, and with difficulty kept. I've used that quote here in a message about a year and a half ago. But I keep thinking about it. It keeps turning over in my mind. And I, I think one of the reasons that a friend really is indeed long sought, hardly found, and with difficulty kept. Is because uh, how fair weathered at times we are in our friendships. How fickle we can be at times in the context of our relationships. You see when the sun is shining and the birds are singing like we're thick as thieves, right? right? <laughs> we're, we're, this is good. But, but when the clouds roll in and winter settles over the souls of the people around us. Sometimes we don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. We don't know what to do, how to do it, how to move towards them. And so we become as thin as ice on a North Texas pond in the middle of the winter. And you know as well as I do, that sheet's not very thick. You're going to put one foot through it and go down to the bottom. (laughs) Can I get a witness? You see... That's, that's, that tends to be the way that we normatively operate in friendships. And we see that all across our culture. And sometimes we even see it within the context of the church. But this picture of friendship that we see between Ruth Naomi and Naomi goes well beyond that. I think what we're intended to see in some, some, some to some degree of ideal friendship, of real friendship, of what it really looks like to truly be a friend. And whether Naomi could see it or not. Remember we said last week sometimes your past grief, it blinds you to God's grace in the present. And so as this cloud settles over, you can't see what's standing right in front of you. Even though Naomi could not see it, I want us to see it this morning. I want you to see it. I want you to see this picture of this beautiful friendship that's a gift of God's grace to Naomi. As we look at this text now, like last week we looked at it through the lens of Naomi. This week we're going to look at it through the lens of Ruth and see four things about friendship. First one, its essence, its marks, its results, and its root. All right, so the first thing, the essence of true, real friendship is a gift of God's grace. I want you to know the essence of friendship is just loyalty and love. That's what it is. That's what friendship is. It's loyalty and love. In verse 8, Naomi picks up a term that gets frequently used through the Old Testament to communicate something of God's faithfulness, to communicate. Something of God's love, His kindness, His loyalty toward His covenant people. And that Hebrew term there that Naomi uses in verse 8 is the word chesed. You gotta kinda like. Like roll it off of your back of your throat when you say the H, Chesed, right? Um, it's the word Chesed means this in the Bible. It means loyalty. It means love. It means faithfulness. It means kindness. It means steadfastness. In fact, it gets translated multiple ways throughout the Old Testament because it has such a rich meaning that one English term is not its equivalent. And so for instance, in places like Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9, it's translated steadfast love where it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and said, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In other places, it's translated as, as, as faithfulness or loving kindness, like Psalm 108, verse 4, where the psalmist says, For your steadfast love is great above the heavens, and your chesed, or your faithfulness, reaches to the clouds. Older translations say your loving kindness stretches to the clouds. Or in other places, like in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it's translated just simply as kindness. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love, he said, to love kindness. Over and over again in the Old Testament, it's it's used in those contexts that talk about steadfastness, loyalty, love, kindness. And it's a term that's used to describe God's relationship to his covenant people vertically, but it's also used at times to describe God's, the people's relationship to each other horizontally. So vertically, it's just related to God loving his people and being loyal to his people. And vertically, it's his people doing the same to one another. And in verse eight, Naomi grabs that term and he says, may the Lord, she says, may the Lord, may Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, may he show you his said. May he deal kindly with you in the house of your mother, in the house of your future husband, that he would give you security, that he would give you rest, that he would give you normalcy, that you would return back to the known and that he would provide for you? And then then she says something radical. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you, show you have said, in the same way that you've dealt with the dead, my two sons, your two husbands, who are now in the grave, and me, your mother-in-law. May the Lord deal with you the way that you've dealt with me, which has been chesed, kindness, loyalty, and love. This is what Ruth does in the context of the relationship that she has with Naomi, in the context of the, she shows chesed, right? You wanna see it elsewhere in the book of Ruth? We've been kind of grander up to this point. I'll pick up from chapter one. We'll land in chapter three here for a moment. I don't wanna give away too much, but in chapter three, whenever Ruth approaches Boaz, and says, Boaz, redeem me. That's what she's asking for, for re- to be redeemed, for, not only for her, but for Naomi. Listen now. how Boaz responds in, je- in, in, in chapter three, verse 10, when he says, may, the, "'May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. "'You have made this last said kindness, "'greater than the first, "'and that you have not gone after young men, "'whether poor or rich.'" What Boaz says is this, is that your kindness, your chesed has been displayed to your mother-in-law on multiple occasions. For the first, the, the, the former that he's referring to is her returning from the fields of Moab with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem and going out into the fields to glean, which we'll see next week as an expression of her desire to provide for Naomi in the present. She's loyally, loyal, loyally loving Naomi in the present by providing for her by gleaning at the corners of the fields. But he says, this latter act of kindness far supersedes that former one because here's what she's asking for. Not only is she going out to the fields to provide for Naomi's present, but she's coming to Boaz saying, would you redeem me? You're one of her kinsmen redeemers. Would you spread your garment over me and take me to be your wife so that I can provide not only for Naomi's present but for her future. For her future. That she would have line, that she would have inheritance, that she would have a, a, a land, that she would have a people that she would not be forgotten about over, over, the, over the course of human history. And he says, this latter one is better than the former because you hadn't chased after all the young men, whether they were poor or rich, no matter their social standing, no matter their financial stability, you haven't chased after them, but you've come to me as one who could redeem not only you, but her as well. And he says, that's a beautiful act of kindness. That's a beautiful act of loyal love. Do you see that? This is the essence of friendship. That it's loyal love. Before, before my time in pastoral ministry, um, or as a, as a lead pastor of a church, I did singles ministry before that and I did student ministry before that. And I can always remember, I always, I'll always remember student ministry as being fond years of experience in my life because we would take kids to retreats and camps, right, constantly and they, we were going in the summer, we would go during the fall or the spring. But particularly in the summer, man, you'd have all these little camp romances that would blossom at camp, right? right from, from, the, from Monday through Friday, right? You'd gone through all the cycles of a marriage, over the course of a week, right? Um, you meet and you get together and then you break up and then you have a hard time. Maybe you come back together and then you go, to, go home and you never see each other again, right? So it's these little, little fickle kind of camp romances, right? And friendships can be that way at times as well with some students. is They kind of bounce from friend to friend based upon their highs and their lows, based upon what they said that day or what they didn't say that day or that they didn't notice that I cut my hair or they didn't notice that I made the team. Whatever it is, right? You have these fickle friendships, and unfortunately sometimes as we merge into adulthood sometimes we don't we bring those patterns same patterns with us into the context of our friendships in the context of what are to be adult relationships and they become very fickle they become kind of flash in the pan friendships but that's not what's going on here there is deep love and loyalty it's the essence of friendship and so how do you know if you're showing that kind of love and loyalty? And how do you show that kind of love and loyalty? I wanna give you three things this morning. And the first one is this. The first one is this. this is marks of a loyal and loving friend. And the first one is this, is that you are present in their pain. That you are present in their pain. I want you to notice when, when Ruth, or Naomi runs down all the reasons why they should return back to their mother's house Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and returns home, but it says Ruth clings to her with a commitment that is even deeper than marriage. We said this last week, because what, what, I, what I say in every wedding ceremony that I perform is this, until death do you part, right? at Death we will part and go our separate ways, and there are many people who remarry after that and, and, and enjoy the, the latter years of their life with a, with a new spouse, but what she's saying is this, is that where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I will be buried. In other words, my commitment to you will transcend and will go beyond even your last breath that you draw on the face of this earth. I will be committed to you and your family and your line as long as I live and be buried where you are buried. She clings to her. She's present in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her brokenness, in the midst of her bereftment, in the midst of her barrenness. Ruth continues to cling to her mother-in-law and she's present. Listen, Proverbs 17, 17 says this about friendship, it says a friend loves at all times. It doesn't say a friend loves sometimes, but not others. It doesn't say a friend loves most of the time, right? It says a friend loves at all times and that a brother is born to lock arms with you through adversity is what Proverbs 17, 17 says. A brother is born for adversity. To lock arms through the most difficult and, and desperate seasons of life. Through the most challenging areas of your life. Through highs and lows that a friend is loving and loyal at all times. Now, that doesn't mean that a friend is always going to affirm every thought that you have. They're not always going to affirm every word that you say. They're not always going to affirm every action that you take. But they're going to move towards you in love, whether you are running your life off the rails or whether or you're, 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 you're on them and pursuing God's path for you. They're going to love at all times. And sometimes whenever you run your life off the rails, it ends in pain, doesn't it? But you know what a friend does in those moments? They don't walk away from you. They're present. They're present right there in the midst of it. Listen, last year, about this time, um, I was going through a really difficult season. Um, A part of it was just my expectations of God and my expectations of other people, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever had that problem in your life, but expecting certain things from God, expecting certain things from other people, and whenever those things do not align with reality, for me, I, I, I had run that course for so long that I just kind of crashed and hit a wall, right? Kind of like that wall that you hit in athletics whenever your body just won't go any further, my soul just would not go any further. And some of you, who, you remember that, and the elders preached for four weeks, and I just kind of took time to reflect and pray and think and process and over the course of that time, I really began to have these thoughts that ran through my head. Like, I could go do something else. <laughs> I'm just going to be real transparent. I could go do something else, right? I can go sign up at UPS, get benefits from my family, and load trucks in the evening, putting packages onto the truck. Because pa- packages, I mean, I have no expectations of them. They have no expectations of me. I can just put packages on a truck, right? That would be some fun work. They provide me benefits. My family would be taken care of. It would be good to go. And I can remember, I can remember sitting on my back patio of my home one morning and I had a dear friend who sat there with me and as I shared with him my heart and just at times through tears and through sadness and he just hadn't listened, he was present in my pain and at the end of that conversation, as I shared with him all the things I was thinking, man, I could go do something else, I could go load trucks at UPS. He looked at me and he said, you know, Shannon, you could do that, but I want you to know if you did that, I would come over here and slap you in the face. I believe those were his exact words, right? Because he was was present in my pain, but he didn't placate my pain, right? He didn't pacify my pain. He didn't feed into that, but he challenged me. This is a calling God's placed on your life, and if you walk away from it, brother, I'm gonna come and hold you accountable to that. But he was present in the midst of it. He didn't give up on me, even though I was ready to give up on myself. That's what loyal love looks like, is to be present in the midst of that, even if it's pain they've caused. You don't look at them and go, you know what? They got what's coming to them. (laughs) They backed themselves into that corner. I tried to warn them over and over again, but they kept moving in a different direction. But a faithful, loyal, loving friend moves towards them in the midst of their pain. It's present. Second of all, I want you to notice as well, not only do they move, or are you present in their pain, but you move against the grain, right? And that's a little rhymy this morning, but let me break it down for you about what I mean by that. They move against the grain. In Proverbs 194, it says, "Wealth brings many new friends plural. But a poor man is deserted by his friend singular. Man, that's, that's big. Wealth, right? Social standing, standing in society, right? You have upwardly mobile individuals who, who have great amounts of disposable income and so they have lake houses and they have season tickets and they have all these opportunities to go and do things, man. It tr- attracts people like moss to a flame, doesn't it? Wealth brings many new friends, plural. Whenever you make it, everybody wants to make it with you. But he says a poor man is deserted by his friend, singular. That those who lack all those things tend to find people moving away from them and not towards them. And I want you to consider in the text how Ruth responds to Naomi. Listen, in verses 8 to 13, Naomi does her best to persuade Orpah and Ruth to go home. Do not come with me. You would be a fool to come with me, Naomi says. You would be an idiot, right? That's that's my paraphrase of what Naomi's saying to them, right? She says this Listen, I'm not coddling a little child in my colon just waiting for you, right? I don't have a baby brewing in my bladder, right? She doesn't use the term for womb, she used the term for just her guts, her intestines. I don't have a baby in there. And even if I did and I was pregnant today, I have no prospects for a husband. I have no hope for the future. I have no potential. I'm too old to marry. I can't produce children. Even if I could and I had one that was in there and it brewed for the next nine months, I had twins. Would you both wait until they were of marriageable age before you remarried? She said, no, my daughters, that would be foolish for you to do. Go back home. Go back home. I have nothing for you. I can do nothing for you. All that's waiting for you with me in Bethlehem is the unknown, insecure, un, not, the absolute absence of security. What's waiting for you back at home is the known and the safe and the comfortable. Go back there. And Orpah does. But notice what Ruth does. See, basically, this is my paraphrase again. She says, stop talking all that nonsense, right? Like, stop talking about that mess. I'm not going back home. I'm staying with you. I'm I'm committed to you. I'm going with you. I know you don't have anything to give to me. But I have something to give to you. See, Ruth knows if Naomi goes home by herself, she's almost certainly dead. And she knows that if she goes with her, that both of them might almost certainly be dead. But Naomi would certainly die without her. You see, to move against the grain, what that author of that Proverbs uh, recognizes is that our natural inclination in human relationships is this, is to move towards people who can do things for us and give things to us and move away from people who need things from us. That's That's the natural grain that every one of us who have been infected by sin from the fall operate with, move towards people who can do things for us and give things to us, and move away from people who need things from us. But what Ruth shows us is that friendship is moving against the grain. It's moving against the grain in someone's life. When they have nothing to offer you, they can do nothing for you, right? You don't just move towards the people who have season tickets, but you also move towards the people who are on food stamps, You move towards them in love and loyalty. You move against the grain. Do do you, or do you surround yourself with people who can give things to you? Because real friendship is not only about what you can get, but what you can give to others. The third mark of it is this. Is that you set your life aside for theirs. Right, You throw your life away so that they can have one. See, at times in real life-changing friendships, there are times where we must throw our lives away for others to have a life, and this is exactly what Ruth does. She says, I know I'm throwing away my inheritance. I know I'm throwing away my security. I know I'm throwing away all the things that I know and am comfortable with to embrace all the things that I don't know, and quite honestly, it's probably gonna be quite painful as we walk through this. I'm throwing away the sure bet for all the uncertainties that lie in Bethlehem. That's what she does. She sets her life aside for Naomi's. And listen, there are times in the context of friendships, real life changing friendships, where people set aside their life for someone else's. You know that? And it happens in all kinds of ways. It happens relationally at times. See, there are times that you could be at a game night on a Friday night, but you're sitting on a quiet back porch with someone else who's weeping. Why? Because you're setting aside your life for theirs. There are times when it happens financially in our lives, where instead of right, buying the new car sooner than we could moving up to the new home sooner than we, than we could, right? We could, we could do all these things really quickly, but instead of leveraging all of our finances towards ourselves, sometimes we leverage finances towards others and we say, you know what? I'll continue to drive this car for another year so I can help with this need in somebody's life. I'm gonna set my life aside for theirs. That's what real life-changing friendships look like whenever they are clothed in love and loyalty, not fickle friendships or flings, but true, lasting, real gifts of God's grace in our lives. They're marked by those three things, at least those three things, present in pain, moving against the grain, and at times throwing our lives away, setting our lives aside so that someone else can have life. And I want you to know there's massive results to this kind of friendship. This kind of relationship and the result is this is that somebody else gets a new story they somebody else gets a new life look 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 here in in, in the in the text with me the love and loyalty Ruth showed to Naomi would result in an unthinkable narrative being written for Naomi an unthinkable story kind of playing out for Naomi. I want you to notice in chapter one, there's a, there's a physical and spiritual, or intertwined in chapter one, there's a physical famine at the beginning of chapter one that has now given way to ripe fields and Harvest. Started with physical famine, it ends with the fields bursting with seed, bursting with the harvest to be brought in to the threshing floor. And the chapter started with a spiritual famine, and now you get to the end of the chapter in Naomi's life, you get to the end of the chapter, and there are hints here that God is now beginning to reverse everything that has been broken and all the bareness that she has experienced. He's beginning to set the stage for his grace to completely transform all of her barrenness and bereftment. In fact, we've been pretty granular up to this point. We've kind of been looking at at chapter one in, in detail, but I want to fast forward again to chapter four, and I want you to see something with me at the end of the story because I want want to lift this fly over to chapter 4, and in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4, the women of the town, after Ruth gives birth to a child, the women of the town, they gather around Naomi at the end of the story, and they begin to declare that God has provided a redeemer for her a redeemer for her old age, a nourisher for her in her old age. Listen to what they say in verses 14 and 15 of chapter four. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age. So this child's been born. It's sitting on Naomi's lap. She's caring for it as a grandchild. And 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 the women are are blessing Naomi and they're blessing this child. God's provided for you a redeemer. How? Look in verse 15 again. There's a little three-letter word there, and it's so powerful. It says for. You're like, man, that's not real powerful. The word for is astounding in this text because of what comes after it for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him do you see how Ruth's love and loyalty expressed to Naomi presence in her pain right moving against the grain you have nothing to give to me I can give things to you let me move towards you not in some kind of codependent way but in a loving way right and setting my life aside for the sake of your life flourishing. And the result of that is that Naomi's story gets rewritten. She's written into the lineage of the greatest king in Israel's history. Who would, one day, who would one day give birth to a son who would be the king of kings. Naomi is not forgotten about in redemptive history. She becomes one of the central figures in its unfolding in the Old Testament. See sometimes whenever we demonstrate that kind of love and loyalty in the context of friendships, what you will find is that God would use you you and your friendship, your love, and your loyalty to someone else to be the pen and ink by which he rewrites the end of their story. He would dip the quill into the ink of your life and he would begin to write. Because you refuse to give up on them even whenever they were ready to give up on themselves that's the result of these kind of friendships but where do they come from I'm close with this where do these where do these kinds of friendships come from because there's a root to them there's a deep root to them to be present in someone's pain, to move against the grain when they're not, not looking to get something from them but give something to them and to set your life aside for the sake of others. I want you to consider there's a deep tap root to these kinds of friendships and it's this. In Ruth's life, it was the fact that, see, her commitment to Naomi was born out of her conversion. Her commitment was born out of her conversion. The root of friendship is our conversion. See, this is, this is not a natural kind of Friendship. This is not our natural inclination to be this loving and this loyal. But what Naomi, what Ruth experiences is not just a commitment to Naomi, but a conversion to Naomi's God. It's not merely a humanistic friendship between two people who are like holding hands, skipping down the road, and singing Barney, right? I love you, you love me. Where's the happy family? That's not what's going it's not a humanistic commitment, but it's born out of a conversion to Naomi's God. Now, some of you go, man, that's a little bit of a stretch. But I want you to look at the very center of Naomi's declaration of allegiance, uh, Ruth's declaration of allegiance to Naomi, and listen to what she says. When she makes this statement, your people shall be my people, your God, my God. May the Lord, all small caps, you know what that word underneath that word is in the Hebrew? It's Yahweh. That's not the generic name for God, that's the personal name of God, the covenant name of God, revealed to Moses at the burning bush, that all of the people of God had taken on their lips in reference to their their God, their lover, their provider, their deliverer. This is the name that Ruth takes on her lips. And that language that she uses when she says, your people, my people, your God, my God, that's covenant language that shows up all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament whenever God is speaking about his covenant with his people for instance in places like Exodus 6 7 he says I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians or again in Leviticus twenty six twelve, God says to the people of Israel and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people do you see the language over and over again I will be your God, you will be my people, I will be your God, you will be my people. That is covenant language throughout the Old Testament. And Ruth says, Your people should be my people, your God, my God. In other words, I'm abandoning all the gods of the Moabites. I'm abandoning Shemash. I'm leaving him here in Moab, and I'm coming back to you with you to Bethlehem to embrace because I've embraced Yahweh. Not in order to embrace Him, but because I have embraced Him. See, the change in these women's lives goes both ways. See, Ruth, neither Ruth nor, nor, nor Naomi showed up at a conference one day and heard a sermon. Right? They weren't listening to, like, KLTY driving down the road and heard somebody talking on the radio. They didn't come to church and hear a message. They weren't sitting in a Bible study. But how, the way that God worked to... to, To change both of their lives, to reset both of their trajectories was through this friendship. And I don't know any other way for real sustaining life change to take place than in the context of friendships. And that's why some of us may have not experienced or tasted as much life change as we thought we should have by now. It's because we've been kind of running this thing ourselves and in isolation and individually trying to work out our salvation with fear and trembling all alone, as opposed to in the context of real friends. See, the, but the root of this, you'll never do this by yourself. You'll never do this by yourself. You need the grace of God in your life, active and operative. To be present in people's pain, to move against the grain, and to set your life aside for theirs. It doesn't happen normally or naturally because Naomi, Ruth, has been converted. See, Paul describes conversion this way in 1 Thessalonians 1 9. He writes, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. In other words, when we showed up, this is how we were received. And not only how we were received, but and how you turned from to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's exactly what happened in Ruth's life. That's exactly why her commitment to Naomi was what it was. It wasn't just this horizontal commitment that Ruth had to Naomi, but it was a vertical commitment to Yahweh and then a horizontal one to Naomi. That's the deep tap root. That's the only thing that will nourish this kind of friendship. Do you have it? Not only do you, not, not only do you aspire, because some of you are walking away right now going, man, like if I, I, I walk out of here, I might be a little bit inspired to go be a better friend. But I want you to know you will fall flat on your face walking out of here if you're just inspired to go be a better friend without a deep tap root in your life of friendship with God. And the only way to get that kind of friendship with God, listen, is not to look at Ruth and Naomi and say, I'm really inspired to go be a better friend. But to look at the one to whom Ruth points and know that he has provided a way for you to have friendship with God. He has provided a way. You see, because there was another... There was, the, the, the Bible is so clear about this in multiple places, but the, the trajectory of scripture continues to point us to Jesus over and over and over and over. And while Ruth does this perhaps better than we do, she still does it imperfectly, but it was one who did it perfectly. You know, there was one who was present in your pain. There was one who didn't return back home to, who didn't stay at home in, in the safe, secure, majestic halls of heaven But there was one who clothed himself, took off his robe and clothed himself in flesh, veiled in flesh that God had seen. The old hymn says, and he came to walk among us and live among us And not only did he come to be present in our pain and begin to reset the trajectory of human life by bringing healing and reordering and turning the clock back to the way things were supposed to be whenever God ordered creation. Not only did he come to be present in our pain, but he came to bear our pain. At the cross, whenever he's hanging there, he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you, what? Forsaken me. Why have you turned your back on me? Why have you looked away from me? Because in that moment, all of the wrath and anger of God against sin was falling upon his son at the cross. And so not only did he come to empathize with our pain, but he came to bear it himself. All the brokenness of this world falls on Jesus at the cross. And he is one who worked against the grain, isn't he? Because looking down, it's not like he looked down and said, I need something from them. <laughs> no, he looked down and said, I can give. He didn't look down and say, I, I, I'm coming to get something from them and I'm coming to give everything to them. He was one who went against the grain and listened. He is one who threw his life away so that you could have one. He is one who set his life aside. So that you could, he is one upon whom the sword of God fell, fell. So that you might live. And without friendship with God through the person of Jesus Christ, all of your efforts to go out and be a better friend are going to wither and dry on the vine. But with that taproot of friendship with God because of Jesus, right? Because Christianity doesn't work uphill. Remember, it works downhill, It's not like I go out and I'm present in people's pain and I work against the grain and I trade my life for theirs and then God would accept me. No, God has done all those things for you so that all you would do is come to him in faith and trust with open hands to receive and then his grace would begin to nourish these kinds of flourishing friendships with love and loyalty. And my hope and my prayer this morning for us as a church And for you as an individual, is that that taproot would nourish flourishing friendships in your life. And in this body, so whenever people talk about Redeemer Church and they look at Redeemer Church from the outside in, they would say, those people love each other. Those people love each other. And there's something about that that is so beautiful. is so attractive. What must their God be like? Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we're grateful that you've provided a way for us to have friendship with you there is no other way to experience true life change Father other than friendship and it starts with friendship vertically with you and then it transfers to horizontally in our lives with other people. And Father I pray there's those in the room this morning who have, who have never come to the place of saying your people, my people your God, my God who have never been converted who have never had their eyes opened who have never had the scales removed, who have never moved from blindness to sight and from deafness to hearing and from hard-heartedness to soft, malleable hearts that are formed by you. God, if there's those who have never been born again to a living hope, Father, I pray that you'd be gracious to save this morning. And Father, for those who have, God, may that taproot of your grace in their life, of their friendship with you, may it infuse all their friendships with a love and loyalty that is unmatched and unmeasured in this world. That we might be able to sit back and see how you might rewrite the stories of people in this community and people in our lives through the ink of our life.